0: So that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among, among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama samaktani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait. Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God.
1: Let's pray. Lord, as we look to your cross today, I pray that it would be more than just this mental grasp of what you've done. I pray that it would explode in our hearts by faith, that we would experience what it is that that you've died for us, that you've taken our place in separation from God and the cross. What that means to us, Lord, I pray, God, that, um, that you would show us those that that are, are in here that it's just, just a hard thing to believe and uh, they think that the church is so bloody and why are they always talking about blood and sacrifice? I pray that we would see ourselves there. Show us Jesus and cause our hearts to worship you in a greater way. I pray for those that do believe in you, but this last week, this last month, this last year, have felt God forsaken maybe in their jobs or in their families or in their lives, they just feel like they've been forsaken. I pray that you would show them through the cross today that though that might be a feeling, it's not a reality because you were truly forsaken for us. Would you apply it to our hearts in faith? I ask that you would anoint me. I need you so desperately to look at these holy things. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we as as Christians, as <clears throat> followers of Jesus, we worship a crucified God. We worship a. Our story is the story of a crucified Messiah at the center of our faith. If you um, maybe have observed Christianity, if you know people that are, are, are Christians, or you're here because someone invited you, or you just felt compelled to come, like what is Christianity all about? The center of our faith hangs a bloody Savior in shame and torture next to two common criminals in a crowd that is mocking Him and spitting on Him and rejecting Him. That is the center of our faith. And the obvious question is, how in the world did this message change the world? How is the message of a a man who claimed to be God, crucified, mocked, scorned, whipped, stripped naked, hung on a cross, why is that the center of our faith? Today we come to the point in the Gospel of Mark that I've been waiting to get to since we started this church in January of last year. Because what we said at the very beginning, the very first service, the very first sermon that was ever preached at this church, what we said was that in order to understand the real, authentic Jesus in the book of Mark... The controlling symbol for interpreting the real and authentic Jesus is the cross. And you do not understand Jesus apart from the cross. Jesus says this over and over again throughout the book of Mark. I am going to the cross. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the cross. He actually tells his disciples in uh, chapter 10 verse 33 that we are going to Jerusalem. And he says, and I will be delivered over to chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn me to death. And then, listen, deliver me over to the Gentiles. That's key. We're going to come back to that. And they will mock me and spit on me and flog me and kill me. And let's go. And this is what he says to his disciples. He also said this, if anyone would come after me, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross as well to do so. So I'm going to a cross, and if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross as well. See, Jesus can be rightly understood and rightly followed only as the Son of Man who will suffer under the cross, surrender his power, and die for us. That's the only way that you and I can understand who Jesus is. So if you're in this place that you're exploring, if you're trying to know who is this Jesus, if you turn to the book of Mark, the only way that you can understand Jesus is by the cross. And this is what brings the dramatic tension in Mark's book, because throughout the entire narrative, no one really knows who Jesus is. They think they do, but they don't know who he is because he hasn't fully shown them yet. The masterpiece was not finished. And those who see Jesus or think they see Jesus want to proclaim who he is, but then Jesus tells them over and over again, don't tell anyone, don't tell anyone who I am. Demons try to say who he is, and he tells them to shut up as well. No one's allowed to say that who Jesus is because they don't get the entire picture yet. The painting is not done yet. Ones that people that do not understand Jesus reject him outright. Others follow Jesus, only to leave later. No one really sees Jesus until the cross because who Jesus is and who who he really is Who he is and all of him, All all of him is wrapped up in what he came to do. The real Jesus can only be rightly known at the cross. That's the only way you'll ever understand Jesus. And I want you to understand this. I want you to get this. And if you're going, well, I don't get the cross, then study the cross. Then look upon the cross, meditate on the cross. If you want to get Jesus, look at the cross. The cross becomes the controlling symbol for interpreting Jesus' true identity. This is the way that Mark tells his entire story. If you only know Jesus as the teacher, or the spiritual leader, or the miracle worker, or the humble peasant, you don't have the whole picture. Now I understand that there are many people, possibly people in this room, that think all we need from Jesus is his teachings. That's all we need from Jesus his teachings. I mean, he was the greatest religious genius of all times. All we need is his teachings. So let us dwell in his teachings. Just teach us what he taught us. Let us think upon the Sermon on the Mount, that wonderful sermon. Let us meditate on the great commandment to love God and love others. Let's do that. That's what we need today. The church is filled with too much blood. Let's just talk about his good teachings. But that's not what Mark says. That's not what the whole of the New Testament says. That's not how the Bible ends in Revelation with a a picture of the bloody lamb coming out as though he'd just been slaughtered. That's not Jesus' own teaching. The operating symbol to understand who Jesus is is the cross. Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, who is a famous pastor and preacher in London, said If you only preach the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only do you not solve the problem of mankind, in a sense, you even aggravate it. You are preaching nothing but utter condemnation because nobody can ever carry it out. This is what he was saying. Without the cross, you can't live out the Sermon on the Mount. You can't love others. You can't love God. It all becomes impossible, condemning nonsense. No matter how this statement offends you today, and I know that it might offend some of you. I understand that, but I must say this. You need the cross. You need the cross of Jesus Christ. You need the cross to understand Jesus. You need the cross in your life personally. Now back to our question, why? Why was the cross the only way to understand the true identity of Jesus? Why is the cross so important? Why is it that if you don't get the cross, you don't get Jesus? Why can't we just have a Jesus who's a great humanitarian miracle worker, Or the Jesus who is a wonderful teacher, the teacher of peace and love. Why does Mark not let the tension of his book go? If you read Mark, all the way through, there's this tension in the book, and it's not let go until that last verse that we read. Truly, this is the Son of God, and then it hangs there. See, before this, everyone's told to be quiet. Everyone's told to be quiet. Everyone is. Demons, people, people that are healed, everyone, disciples, Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this. And there's this tension that that arises in the whole book, and it keeps on going, keeps on going, and it builds at the cross, and then it's broken by this centurion who was a Roman who was overseeing his death to make sure that he was really dead. And once Jesus breathed his last, he said out loud, truly, this was the Son of God. And Mark goes, finally, someone gets it. This is who Jesus is. He's the crucified Messiah. What we are supposed to see in Mark's gospel is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And for the next two weeks, I want to be as clear as I possibly can. I don't want to endeavor to be clever, not that I ever get clever, but I don't want to be. I want to be clear as I possibly can. So I'll just come right out with it then. What we're supposed to see in Mark chapter 15, is that Jesus suffered under the wrath of God. And Jesus suffered under the wrath of God that you deserved and that I deserved. Without seeing that, you don't see who Jesus is. Without seeing Jesus, not only the teacher, but Jesus who would suffer under the wrath of God, you don't really get who Jesus is. Jesus Christ, who lived a perfect life, who preferred others, who lived by the golden rule, who perfectly obeyed all 10 of the commandments, who fulfilled the whole of the Old Testament law, who, when he stood before trial, before Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, Pilate could find no fault in him. He said over and over again, I find no fault in this man. What evil has he done? This perfect Jesus suffered for our sins. He suffered under the wrath of God for us. And what Mark does is he puts theological clues to point to this in Mark chapter 15. The first one we see is in verse 2. It says, they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. The chief priests, they bound him and they led him away and they delivered him over. Remember I told you, remember in chapter 10 of Mark I said, remember this this part where it says that they will deliver me over. I'm going to be delivered over to the Gentiles and they will Beat me, flog me, and kill me. See, this handing over is a huge, it's like a, a theologically pregnant passage. In the Old Testament, in their early history, the people of Israel were warned that if they broke the covenant of God, they would be scattered among the nations. God said, if you break my commandments, if you break the covenant, I will scatter you among the nations as an outworking of my wrath towards you. God would use the nations, that is the Gentile nations, to judge Israel. And this happened. There's actually one prophet whose name is Habakkuk who actually got a glimpse of this and it blew his mind. He was like, wait, how can you use wicked nations to judge us? Why would you do that? And God said, because I told you I would. And the northern kingdom of Israel was destroyed by Assyria. They actually led Israel away with fishhooks, giant fishhooks that they would impel them with and lead them away. The southern kingdom of Judah was taken captive to Babylon where they were exiles for 70 years. And the psalms, the psalmist, there's a couple psalms where the psalmist cries out that that the, the Psalms were these collections of Jewish songs and poems, and one of them cried out that they wanted God to deal with them directly. Deal with my sin directly, God. For you, you, God, are merciful, but don't deliver me over to my enemies. Don't hand me over to the Gentiles. I will be utterly destroyed if you do that. See, so that was the mark of judgment. If God handed you over to Gentiles, you were judged, and the wrath of God was poured out. Please, God, don't let that happen. So what is the chief priest doing when they handed over Jesus to Pilate? When they handed Jesus over to Rome, they were delivering the king of the Jews over to the wrath of God. Divine judgment. See, if Jesus, who, if Jesus was who he said he was, there was no way the Romans could touch him. There was no way the Romans could kill him. So they were calling his bluff. If you are Jesus who you say you are, we're going to deliver you over to Rome. You think you're the Messiah? We'll give you over to Rome and let them destroy you ultimate judgment, and see if God will save you then. If he was God, we couldn't punch you. If you were God, we couldn't, and so they did, right? Remember, they blindfolded him, they put a cloak over him, and they began to beat in his face. It's like, if you were God, prophesy. Who is it that just hits you in the face? And they delivered him over to Rome, and Rome did the same thing. The Romans actually went a little further, and they made this crown of thorns, and they embedded it in his skull. And they stripped him naked of his clothes. See, Mark doesn't really talk about the the torture and the pain of the cross. Mark focuses on the shame of the cross. The shame of the Son of Man. They stripped him naked. Embedded a crown of thorns in his skull. Put a purple cloak on him like a fake king. And began to beat him with clubs and reeds. And they said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they got it right because, see, the the Jews called him Messiah. But the, the Romans knew how to interpret that. What you're saying is this guy's the king. What you're saying is he's king, and if he's king, we couldn't do this to him, and they would begin to beat him. If you really were king, we couldn't do this to you, and then they would rip the purple robe off of him and then flog him. If you really were the king, we couldn't do this to you. And then, as he was hanging on the cross, someone shouted, save yourself, come down from the cross. They actually shouted that to him, if you are who you said you were. If you are who you say you are, then come down from the cross. Save yourself. Now, at this moment, this is exactly what we would expect. If this was a movie, this is exactly what would happen. At this moment, this is where Robin Hood shoots the executioner to free everyone. This is where Peter finally l- learns how to use a sword, right? And he actually uses it right, right when that, the executioner is about to pound in the nail in Jesus' hand. Peter cuts off his hand instead of the guy's ear because that doesn't make any sense, you know? He cuts off his hand, and his hand flies off, and you're like, yes, and then Jesus goes, pop, pop, and he pops off the cross, and he comes down, and you're like, Messiah. (laughs) This is Messiah. And then everyone worships, and he he delivers himself. He saves himself, but if he did that, and he could have done that, if he did that, he would not have saved any one of us. That didn't happen. He remained on the cross. They kept mocking. And they kept beating. They kept spitting. They kept killing him. And then someone actually said, he saved others. He said this mockingly. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. But here's the deal. He wasn't there for himself. He wasn't on that cross for him. He was on that cross for you. He was on that cross to save others. Others. Jesus taught that he did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. I mean, he's perfect. He doesn't belong on that cross. You and I belong on that cross, but he remains there on that cross until he breathes his last breath. What I find fascinating as I read over the story, how Pilate said, He's already dead? That's the end of him? That's not really the end of him because we'll see him again next week in a different light. But that's the end of him. I mean, we've killed him. He's done. He died that fast. Normally, it takes people a bit longer to die on a cross. But, you know, we kind of gave him a really bad flogging. That's probably why he died. And then Mark says this in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, it is at noon, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I used this point over a year ago when Jesus was standing in the Jordan River about to be baptized by John. And the point was this. This was like point two or something of like the third sermon that we ever did here. Jesus' solidarity with humanity, that's what we said. This, Jesus standing in the Jordan River is Jesus' solidarity with humanity. But it's here at the, actually at the cross at this point makes more sense. See, in the Jordan River, he was becoming like us. But here on the cross, he ultimately becomes like us. In reality, he becomes like us fully. I mean, he does become like us that he becomes human, yes. And that he steps into our mess, of course. But he becomes like us in that he is made sin who knew no sin. You might be able to identify with this cry that Jesus lays, lets out on the cross as being God forsaken. It's a very common human experience. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says that we lie under the shadow of death because sinful humanity has forsaken God. And has been forsaken by God. And we've been delivered over to our sinfulness, and live under, Paul says, the wrath of God. You and I live under the wrath of God. See, the very essence of sin is rebellion against God. It's breaking a relationship with God. It has to do with relationship. See, this is, a lot of us think this. When I do bad things to God, all I have to do is do something good to make up for that bad thing. That does not work with God because it's about relationship. Just like when you're married, if I did something horrific to my wife. Buying her a dress does not make up for it. It's like, here's a dress. Like, what's that for? That thing I said about you in front of everyone? Why don't you say sorry? Nah, I'm just gonna give you a dress. (laughs) But our relationship's messed up right now. Yeah, but just take this dress. This is exactly what it's like. You have broken relationship with God. Not that you've done bad things and that you have to make up for these bad things. You have a broken relationship with God. It's about broken relationship. It's just It's like you and I, we, we think of sin in, in terms of doing something bad in terms of actions or thoughts or intentions, something wrong we've said or something wrong we've done. But that's not the serious thing about sin. The terrible thing about sin is that it's rebellion against God. It's man defying God, becoming our own God, making our own standards, going our own way, thinking that what we do is right. And the result is a broken relationship with God. Now, this is objectively true, but we feel this forsakenness in our subjective experience from time to time. This is always objectively true, but we feel it sometimes. When we fail, we feel it sometimes. When we feel inadequate, we feel it. That God-forsakenness. And what we see on the cross is that Jesus entered into our experience, who had perfect relationship with God. And he entered into our experience as being God-forsaken in a real way, and he cries out because he stood in our place and has really been forsaken by God. And you have to understand this. If you feel forsaken by God now, if you trust in Jesus for your salvation, and you feel forsaken by God, I know this is a very common experience. I'm in a God-forsaken home. I'm in a God-forsaken relationship. My job. My job my family. I just feel forsaken by God. So you might experience that. You might taste that. But because of the cross, we know it's not true. Because Jesus went through real God-forsakenness, and we will never, ever be forsaken by God. Ever. God will never leave us or forsake us. Ever. So you might feel that way, but you have to tell yourself it's not true. I might feel that way. Yes. Thank God, who through Jesus Christ has delivered me from condemnation, has delivered me from sin. We feel this way a lot in our marriages. We feel this way a lot. We feel cursed. Like, I just feel cursed right now, having a cursed day. Nothing is going right. Because of the cross, we can know that's just, that might be a feeling, it's a passing feeling. The truth is this. God, Jesus truly was forsaken for you in a real way. But here's a question that might come up in your own mind. Why doesn't God just forgive us? I mean, he's kind of mean in that he makes, he makes people pay. Like, why can't God, I mean, I forgive people. Like, when they ask me, for, I'm sorry, I'm like, I forgive you. Why couldn't God just go, you're sorry? Forgiven. Why couldn't God just forgive with a word? So you have to understand the, the problem of sin is the greatest problem that even God has ever had to deal with. It's the greatest problem that God has even had to deal with. The Bible teaches that the whole world, everything that we see was created by God's word. God spoke it, and it was. He spoke things into existence. The whole world said, let there be light, and then there was light. He spoke things into existence with his word. And you would think that he can forgive with the word. If his word has that much power to create something out of nothing, why can't he just say, forgive, and then we're forgiven? But when God comes to deal with the problem of man and the problem of sin in us, in our rebellion, a word is not enough. God can't speak sin away. Sin creates a reality that God cannot look upon. God cannot just speak it away. God could could speak man into existence and light into being. And when it came to dealing with our sin, he had to do something altogether different. If God can forgive us by just simply saying, I forgive you. He would have done so, but he didn't. And what the cross says is that God's word is enough to create, but it's not enough to forgive our sin. The word had to take on flesh in order to take on sin. And this is what happened on the cross. And the question that the Bible asks every single one of us, the question that the cross asks all of us is not how you spent last night. We won't even go there. Not how you spent last weekend. Or whether you're moral or immoral. Or what your deepest innermost thoughts are. The first question of the cross is, what is your relationship with God? Because lastly, what the cross speaks about is it speaks about Jesus is bringing us back to God. This is what the cross means. See, the cross of Christ speaks to us. And if we look upon the cross and listen to it and meditate upon it this week, we will hear that you and I, you and I, as collective humanity, are precious to God. You are precious to God. You are important to God. You are valued by God. I'm not trying to be too sentimental here. I'm not trying to give you like, just weird, cute feelings. This is truth. Look at the cross. It speaks to us that the son of God is dying because God loves us. Why else would God send his own son to die there? Hung in the middle of two common criminals, naked, spit upon, bleeding, forsaken. Why? Because he loves you. Because you're precious to him. Because he wants to restore a relationship with you. And the cross expounds this truth. When you meditate on the cross, you're like, you love me that much? It brings this thought into living color. It shows us the love of God. 1 John 4.10, John later writes, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that God has loved us. How has God loved us? He sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation means that he satisfied the wrath and the anger and the justice of God for us. That we can be in right relationship with God, that we can have a relationship with God. 1 Peter three eighteen says, for Christ who suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. See, the main point of the cross is not that, it is this, it is that your sin is that bad. It is that God loves you that much, but the, the most important thing about the cross is that You have access to God. That you can have a living, breathing, tangible, real relationship with the living God. Because God has removed your sin. And has stamped on you a new identity. And you're new. And you're holy. And you're right. Because of what Christ has done on the cross. This is why Mark mentioned the curtain was torn. All of a sudden this curtain, this means that this is the end of religion. Before this... If you remember, Simon of Cyrene was, um, this is one of the, the, the other, the shame themes that Mark writes about in chapter 15, that after Jesus was flogged and beaten with this um, leather whip with all these uh, they called them tails on them and on these tails were tied sharp bone and metal. And they would wrap it around the body and they would yank it and flesh would fly out and organs would be exposed and bones would, it would it was horrific. And after they did this to Jesus, they gave him this beam, this cross to, to carry. And he couldn't carry it. So they made this guy, Simon of Cyrene, carry it. Now here's the deal. Simon of Cyrene, who wasn't from Jerusalem, was in there because it was Passover. He was there for his Passover because Simon of Cyrene knew that he had sin. And he needed to atone for his sin. So he was there on Passover to make atonement for his sin. He was guilty. Jesus was not. The reason why Rome made you hold your cross over to the place you were going to die was to show everyone that you were guilty. But when Simon the Cyrene was carrying the cross, it showed that Simon was guilty. But who died? Jesus died. It is true that Simon was guilty. That's why he was there to make atonement for his sin. It was true that Jesus was innocent, but Jesus took Simon's cross. Jesus took your cross. That shame, that sin, that guilt, Jesus has bore all of that. And this means that this is the end of religion. This means that there's an end of going every year to Jerusalem to make atonement. This means that sacrifices are done because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. And that curtain was torn, which separated man from God. That curtain was torn. And you have access to the presence of God. It's the cross that saves us. It's the cross of Jesus that saves us. The cross does not speak that we are to save ourselves, or it does not tell us something to do that will save us. You have to understand that. I know that there's a lot of um, different religions and faiths represented in San Francisco, in the Bay Area. I know that. The difference with Christianity, the difference with the cross of Jesus is that it does not tell you to do something in order to be saved. The cross says this, it is done. It is finished. It has happened. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's the cross that saves me. It's the cross that saves you. It was the cross event that Jesus satisfied the wrath of a holy God against our sins. That is the gospel. Now, what are you to do? You simply believe. I know that's scandalous. You're like, wait, no, no, I have to do something. Believe. Believe that Jesus died for your sins. Put your hope and your faith in him, nothing else. Don't even try to say you're going to live better. Don't come to God like that. Don't go, okay, okay, I'm going to live better now, God. Don't do that. That's not what the cross says. Do not say that you're going to be a better man or a better woman. Do not say you're going to stop this or stop that. You have one thing to do, and this is it, believe. You're not saved by giving something up. You're not saved by being better. You're saved because of Jesus. That is it. That's scandalous, I understand. But that's what the cross is. It's a scandal. He took your place. So all you do is simply believe. Only believe, and thou shalt see that Christ is all in all to thee. And because, and I want to make this really plain. Again, I'm trying to be really plain here. So I normally end the sermon there. You guys know this about, you're, like a lot of you guys are okay, this is where he ends. This is normally where he ends. He goes, let's pray, and then we all worship. But I'm going to add this little thing on because I'm trying to be as plain as I can be. You believe, and then what happens is this wonderful thing explodes in your heart where you can obey the Sermon on the Mount. Why? Because because it's already done for you. You can love God and love others because it's already done for you. You're like, just live in it now. You're like, I want to because God's changed my heart. It's not that I have to. It's not that I have to do this in order to get, I already have God, and nothing I do, nothing I do or say can change that. It's been done for me, and now my heart is set free To follow Jesus. And if you believe, what the Bible calls us to do is to simply identify and remember. To identify and remember. Because of the mystery of believing in Jesus, because it's something done for us and nothing that we do ourselves, the early church would celebrate with the symbolism that was done by Christ. And these are the things that were instituted and given to us by Jesus. And the first is baptism. See, you don't do anything to be saved. Now you just identify. God's done it for you. Now you're like, yes, I'm free. And I'm going to show you. One way we do that is baptism. The early church would baptize. And and what it was, is it was this picture of, here's me, and I'm dying. Ready? Here I go. And you're under the water, just like Jesus went to the grave. And then all of a sudden, you don't stay there, because that would be a really bad pastor who kept you underwater. You go down, and then you come up. And it's a picture of you dying and being reborn. You identify with Jesus. You identify with his cross, with his death, and with his resurrection. That's what we're called to do. The other thing that we're given is to remember. And we do that at the table of communion. We approach this table where there's this broken bread that's a picture of Christ's body that was broken, torn apart, beaten for us. And this cup in the middle that represents Christ's blood poured out for many for the remission of sins. We take the bread and we dip it in the cup and we thank God. I've said this before. A friend of mine gave me a quote, and he said, you know, the world drinks to forget, but Christians drink to remember. We drink, we go to the table communion to remember what Christ has done for us. That's it. We believe, we get to identify with Jesus, and we remember what he's done. Now let's pray. Lord, I pray that the, the cross would just explode in our hearts by faith. That we would see that it was you there, not us there. Not just on a cross, because Peter would die on a cross. But it would be you that would be separated from the Father. That would you that would take the wrath of God. It was you that would take our death and our pain and our separation that we can be in relationship with you. And now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I pray that hearts in this room that have never believed that, we just believed it mentally in some, some sort of cerebral way would make it real in their hearts they would feel free today and they would approach you not promising all these things that they would do for you but approach you in thanksgiving that you've taken their guilt and their shame and we come to you as sinners and we leave as righteous saints it's a mystery lord i don't get it but i thank you I pray that many in here would identify with you in baptism, and many would meet with you at the table of communion. In Jesus' name, amen.